0: A lot of leaders and innovators talk about disrupting healthcare, but what does that really mean? And how does one actually do it? On Life-Centered Healthcare, we dive into these questions and more, talking to innovators who are leveraging Clay Christensen's theories to transform our healthcare ecosystem. I'm Anne Summers-Hogg, Director of Healthcare at the Clayton Christensen Institute, and I hope these stories help inspire you along your journey to transform health and care. Welcome, listeners. I'm excited to have you back for part two of my discussion with Dr. Zev Neuwirth about his book, Beyond the Walls. In this discussion, we're going to talk about the second and third parts of his book. So if you have not yet listened to part one of this discussion, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode and then join us again here. So Zev, welcome back to the studio. Thank you again for chatting with me oh, today.
1: Oh, and Summer, it's always a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Well, let's hope you still feel that way at the end of the discussion. <laughs> let's go ahead and dive in because I loved reading your book, Beyond the Walls, and I'm excited for you to share some more insights with listeners. So in your chapter that you titled Titans of Disruption, you discuss that the retail giant's entrance into healthcare is ever present. And you mention that all the vertical integration from these titans is paying off. But I want to talk more about what that means and if it really is paying off. Because one of the things you talk about in the book, rightly so, is the revenue growth that these organizations are seeing. And revenue growth is one thing, but that doesn't mean that they have a profitable, sustainable, and scalable business model per se. So how do you think they can move from simply growing revenue to sustainable margin growth, or really creating a sustainable profit
1: model? In the chapter, and I describe this, and I, I can't take full credit for this. In fact, I'm not sure I'd take any credit for this. But Others have written about this, and Robbie Pearl, in, in particular, has written about this. Here's the strategy, right? <laughs> Here's the strategy. It's really not that complicated. It's not just about short-term revenue. It's really about long-term market domination. And so these retailers and these pharmacy chains, so we're talking about Amazon, Walmart, we're talking about Best Buy Health, we're talking about Walgreens and CVS, and even the payers like Humana and Optum and the Blues. So here's the strategy. It's number one, let's get the components of the ecosystem. So let's get the pieces on the chessboard. And so let's acquire providers, let's acquire provider groups, let's acquire pharmacies, let's acquire other capabilities, right, and services. And that's exactly what you see happening. So they're amassing the pieces. And let's just be clear, they don't call themselves insurance carriers or payers. They don't call themselves pharmacy chains. They don't call themselves retailers. Do you know what they call themselves? They call themselves healthcare companies. And I think that's an important point because just so we're all on the same page, we tend to think people still use the term payers. And I'm like, what's a payer? Because the payers have more providers than you have. So really, you're going to call them a payer? Right. The game has changed. These entities have morphed, and they're healthcare companies. And I think we're still deluding ourselves that there's swim lanes. There are no swim lanes. We're not playing in that game anymore. We're playing water polo. There are no lanes. There's just the goal, and there's a ball, and we're all in it with our little helmets on. So that's the game. And what they're doing is getting the players, right? So they're building their team in this water polo match. And whether it's physicians and pharmacies and analytic companies and all those kind of capabilities. So that's first phase. Second phase, now they're acquiring the consumers, right? And so they're doing that through various means. One of the means is through Medicare Advantage. So Optum is the, has more Medicare Advantage patients than anyone else. I mean, I don't know about the hospital systems, have a few hundred, a few thousand. Optum has over six million Medicare Advantage members. Humana, yes, I know, eyes popping. It's eye popping. Wow. Humana is number two, and they have like over five million. I actually think Optum's is close to seven million MA patients. Humana is, is over five million, and then you go down to the blues and others. So they're acquiring the customers, the consumers, right? And by the way, they're really smart because they're working with benefits consultants. Many people don't understand what know even know what a benefit consultant is or know how their role is critical because. They're selling to employers, they're selling to consumers and aggregating customers. And so, so they know this. And so I don't know how many hospital systems are adept at working with benefits consultants. I doubt many. And so they're amassing the capabilities, the, 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 the stakeholders, the, the services, they're amassing the consumers. And they're also, let's keep in mind, they're building the capabilities to do this work, and especially they are skating towards value based care, right? And so because they realize that's where CMS is going. CMS is declared by 2030, all their members are gonna be in some sort of value-based, risk-based product or service. So that's what they're skating. I mean, Humana dropped its commercial business to focus exclusively on MA, right. right? I mean, this is strategic, right? This isn't like a reactive thing. All of this is highly strategic. And then mm-hmm. the third step, Once they do this, and this is a multi-year prong, so they're setting themselves up to be the winners in the future by having the capabilities and having the customers. And then the third step is dominating the market, right? Because they have, they can deliver. And so I think in their mind, where they see hospital systems and provider groups is literally like vendors on their platform. And so I'm not worried, and I don't think they're worried about short-term revenue. I think they're looking out five to seven years from now they're setting themselves up and situating themselves to to be category kings is what they call this, right? And so they don't call this, but that's what it is. There's a new category here and they want to be the king and that's the war here. They know what they're doing.
0: Yeah. I That is a multifaceted answer. And I want to touch on a couple things and follow up on them. One of the things that you said is it's a strategy and it's a strategy for long-term market domination. And that in the process of executing this strategy, they're building the capabilities. So they're trying to amass the resources and the processes and the all of the components they need in order to carry out this strategy.
1: Yeah, and Summers kind of just interject one thing. You used the word building, and I know you were just you were just trying to paint the picture of what but I would actually say that's they're actually not building, they're buying. And I think that's a lesson we should learn because they know they don't have the time to build and it's not cost effective to build and quite honestly, who has the capability or the time to do that. So unlike hospital systems that are still in, we have to build everything ourselves, they're actually curating and aggregating and amassing that. Now, in the book, I actually, I'm very honest about this, of course, and I'm very open about it. And and very, you know, what I say is, that's an amazing approach. And at the same time, and I think you're going to go here with this is to integrate all of these purchases together in some sort of seamless you know way and I maybe I'll let you ask the question so I don't go off but that's not a small feat and so it's smart and it's fast and it may be the way to go but integrating all of these companies together and having them work together and communicate together that is a multi-year activity.
0: Right. And that is the part that's extremely hard because of how business models work and how they solidify over time. And I would couple that with the fact that most mergers fail because organizations don't actually understand the value of what they're acquiring and they try to integrate it into
1: their core business. I think what some of them are doing is kind of slick. Is And Humana is a great example. So Humana shed some of its businesses, like its commercial business. And then they had an insurance company with its capabilities. And then they had a Centerwell, their Centerwell brand. So they actually split off into two businesses. Instead of trying to merge or integrate, they've got a practice business called Centerwell. and, And even there, they said, we're not going to be in the um, hospice business right so they shed that and they had purchased that right and they shed it so they're focused on these clinics these Centerwell clinics and the Centerwell brand which includes home too they've actually they're going to go into the home where but that is a, they're not integrating that with their insurance company now the smart thing about that is number one to your point okay you now don't have to integrate and, and merge because you know that that takes a lot of time and there's a lot of failure right there. And two, by having two separate brands, it really liberates the brand. So the Centerwell brand could serve, in fact, other insurance companies because it's separated from their insurance company. So it's not like like if I'm Optum, I wouldn't hire Humana as an insurance company, but I might hire their Centerwell brand in a region if I need senior care. Or some other folks might not want the Centerwell brand, but they'll want Humana's insurance capabilities. And so I think even Optum is playing that game, too. They're not necessarily merging all of it. Now, clearly, in, let's say, their community, they have a, like, sort of a senior care division, and they're purchasing a bunch of companies like Landmark and, and, and Health. And that, I wonder there, you know, what they would do if they would keep them separate and, and sell them as separate businesses with separate dis- different business models. Or would they try to merge them and make that seamless? And I think that is probably a decision by decision, division by division sort of thing.
0: And you pointed to something important, which was the brand. But brand is marketing and brand is an asset, right? Your brand isn't your business model. And you you were right, I was going where you thought with the integration component. It's like we've worked together before, Zeph. But in terms of when organizations acquire other organizations, what is critical is that they understand the why, the what, and the how. So... Why was the organization acquired? What's the value that it's providing to the acquirer? What are the jobs to be done that both entities serve? And how do those align or not? And then based on the why and the what, clarify the how. And that's in terms of determining the integration or not. So do we keep these business models as separate or do we try to blend them? And the other thing I was going to point to is Clayton Christensen often calls out that the general hospital is destined to be a flawed business model because it attempts to be all things to all people and to run all three types of business models under one umbrella. And I won't go into the details of it today. But I did recently write a blog on this, and I'll put the link in the show notes. It's called Is Vertical Integration the Next Value-Based Care? And it looks at how vertical integration is a really popular strategy in healthcare today, in large part because of these retail giants that you mentioned who are no longer staying in a lane but are all playing water polo. And I really like that analogy, by the way. But the three types of business models are solution shops, value-adding process shops, and facilitated networks. And I detail those in the blog, but. One of the challenges in healthcare is the services along the value chain are a mishmash of these different types of business models. And it is incredibly challenging to have all of the resources, processes, and priorities required to run these various disparate types of business models and deliver on the various value propositions that each one provides all under one entity. So that's why I asked the question I did that while revenue growth we are seeing from these retail giants, and as you pointed out, they have a long-term strategy for domination. I would note that strategy is only as good as its execution. And your business model determines whether you can actually execute on your strategy. So I think they are certainly entities to watch for no other reason than their size alone and the way they wield power in the industry. But I do approach it through the lens of theory with a bit of skepticism as to whether it can be pulled off.
1: I think they could use your help in terms of making sure that their businesses actually have real integrity around the business models and that they're not trying to mishmash these all together because I agree with you and, and obviously with with Clayton Christensen's teachings that that is not a great way to go. Although I do, this is a question I've really been wondering about for quite some time. I mean, there still are stores. I just, my bias, my belief is that segmentation is really the way to go in healthcare. And I think we're seeing that. I wrote about that in my first book, which was published four years ago, where I, I said this notion of like primary care is doing everything and being everything for everyone, everywhere, all the time is ridiculous that what we're going to see and what we need is is to peel off so that senior care has to be, it is its own business model. It has its own set of jobs to be done. Women's health, has its own set of jobs to be done. And I think that we're seeing that actually play out in the market now big time, right? I mean, four or five years ago when I wrote that book and and made that recommendation, and I actually, as you recall, I wrote—I actually had a diagram outlining the segmentation of primary care. I don't know that, I don't recall if I used the jobs to be done, I don't know if I used the jobs to be done in there, I I think I did, because I was clearly aware of it. But each one of those has a different job to be done. And now, look at senior care. I mean, there's an explosion on the market of very focused shops around senior care, the Chen Meds, the Ayaras, the Patinas, the Oak Streets, I mean on and on at Wells. Women's health is exploding as a segmented jobs to be done business model and you're seeing all these brick and mortar as well as hybrid as well as virtual offerings just for women. And think about wellness now. I mean, even you're starting to see that. And so I actually, I wasn't going to go here, but well, actually I did in my chapter on on the titans, is there are lessons we need to be learning from these titans because I actually do think they are segmenting, I think they are focusing on jobs to be done, and I wonder if our hospital-based integrated delivery networks, if they should take a lesson from that and start to spin off independent business lines so that the finances don't all report up to one entity. Because to your point, I know and we know that There are certain things that happen in the hospital system that are the priority and then everything else gets suboptimized. As much as there's talk about it from a business perspective, you don't get the resources. And I think there are some great examples of hospitals that are learning this lesson and showing us how to do it as well.
0: That's the great thing about a good theory is I don't have an opinion. The theory has an opinion. And the theory can be so helpful regardless of which organization is using it. And that is the value of a good theory. I think you're spot on with the jobs to be done component. And that's why these retail giants are going to be interesting ones to watch. You always want to pay attention in the market when the consumers start to hire something new, especially in aggregate, when a lot of them are doing it. We could spend the, the whole discussion on this question,
1: but... Yeah, well, in some ways, I mean, just let's be like this week or this in the past two weeks... Walmart is in discussions about purchasing ChenMed, which is the premier senior care clinic. I mean, there, there's, in my mind, nothing touches it, right? I mean, Ch- ChenMed has won more awards, has been recognized as perhaps the best healthcare system in the, in the country. It's the only healthcare company that has been awarded a, a company that will actually change the world for the better. This is obviously a viable business model, and it's been around Uh, Now they brought some professional uh, outside uh, folks in to lead the company, CEO, et cetera. And now they're talking about, and I don't know if it's already been signed or inked or whatnot, but just imagine this, Walmart, which sees more patients in a week or customers in a week than all the hospital systems, I think, in a year, right? I mean, could you imagine if you had senior care clinics in Walmarts literally within five to seven minutes of the vast majority of the American public?
0: I saw that announcement and actually thought about the M&A discussion we just had which is would it work would Walmart integrate or not integrate them effectively in order to retain the value that they acquired but that would be a separate episode i do want to touch on a couple more things before we run out of time today so i'm going to move us on to your final chapter from disrupted to disruptor and in here you discuss the role of vertical partnerships you quote christensen's innovator's dilemma and the importance of separating disruptive business lines From the core business operations, which we talked about in part one of this episode. And you discuss these new partnerships between VCs and health systems. And you say that they're an effective way to spin off emerging business lines as separate entities. Effectively, these partnerships are creating autonomous business units that are separated from the core. And you also talk about how these are helpful because, as we were just discussing, it doesn't detract or distract the health system from the primary business and their core revenue streams of what the health system does. So can you talk through some examples of how you see this strategy paying off for health systems
1: and also for VCs? Because we all know if it doesn't pay off for VCs, it won't last long. So I'll give a quick example, one, and although there are many. So Hospital for Special Surgery, this is a leading academic center on musculoskeletal care maybe in the world, definitely one of the best in the country for musculoskeletal care. So Hospitals for Special Surgery, and they saw during the pandemic the tremendous need for virtual physical therapy. And so they were providing physical therapy to their patients virtually, right? So a physical therapist would get on and work with a a client, a patient, and and do physical therapy. Everyone understands the benefits of physical therapy. It it reduces pain. It it helps people. It reduces the need for injections and surgeries. It obviously reduces falls and all these sorts. So it's a no-brainer. PT and particularly virtual PT. And so they, they were forced to do it because of the pandemic like everyone else. And then they realized, oh my God, this is a great business model. Let's uh, consider launching virtual physical therapy. And so instead of trying to do it within their organization as a, Program or initiative, they decided they were going to partner. And I don't know the details of this, but the upshot is they decided they were going to spin it off as a separate company. Maybe someone there had written, had read Clayton Christensen's works and was familiar with it, and they realized that it, that it was going to be far more likely to be successful and, and cost effective if they spun it off as a separate business. But what do they know about spinning off separate businesses? So they decided to partner with Flair Capital, which is a VC firm. And and they spun off a company called Right Move, and they did. And then, of course, they hired the executive team from outside, so they weren't pilfering people from inside. And so everyone was happy. And they formed this company and with expert C suite folks from outside who had experience in this. And of course, they launched with a twenty million fund from outside of Hospital Special Surgery. So Hospital surgery, Hospital for Special Surgery did not fund this. And of course. Uh, the VC firm, Flare Capital, brought in other VC firms into the rounds, and so they're going to get probably, that's just the first round of 20 million, they're going to get more rounds. So this is an example of a bona fide, best-in-class medical center, academic center, world-class that is partnering with a VC firm to launch a startup instead of, and a spinoff, instead of, of trying to do this with their own four walls. The advantages, number one, let's be very real about this and honest, if they had tried to do this with inside, let's be real, they would have had to, whoever was sort of assigned, the poor VP or the vice president or, or AVP or executive that had been assigned to take this on, would have had to fight with every other division chief within hospital for special surgery, for prioritization, for attention, for IT sources, for capital sources, right, so.
0: Wait, Zev, it's like you've done that before.
1: I don't know, and I'm not saying this is what they would have had to do, and good luck with that. So if they'd gone through that, first of all, they would have been forced to do a pilot. So we're probably talking if they even had been able to get anything off the ground, it would have taken years. And my guess is they would have been killed. And potentially rightly so, because they're competing, to your point, with the main brand and the main job to be done of that hospital and all the business models that actually That hospital is making a lot of money and a lot of margin off of what it does. And here comes along the side business and the sideshow. And then it's detracting and diluting their major business model and their major brand. So that's number one. Number two, let's keep in mind the advantage of this is that Hospital for Special Surgery is not siphoning off capital. They're not paying Flare Capital as a consultant. Flare Capital is coming in and bringing in tens of millions of dollars into it. Not only that, what does Hospital Special Surgery know about going out and recruiting an executive entrepreneurship who started up a company flair capital knows everything about that so they're bringing they know how to hunt for search for find the right talent which by the way they did they brought world-class talent into it to lead it their ceo is amazing and they know how to grow businesses and they know how to bring advisors who know how to grow businesses and that's just one example so i think everything you've been talking about is spot on and i think what Clayton said this is now what he predicted, and what he said years and years ago, is now happening in healthcare. And I find it remarkable to hear hospital systems sort of scratch their head or say, really? Should we be partnering with a BC firm? It's like, are you kidding me? If you want to grow and diversify, which I think hospital systems need to do, look at all the advantage of this. Are you really going to dilute your own core business model, which is a hospital, by trying to do all these other things? So. I think there is such a big lesson in there. And it's not just that. If you look at General Catalyst, now they're partnering with, I think, 15 to 17 hospital systems. Whoever thought that a venture capital firm, and now again, they're a unique and amazing capital firm, and they've got advisors and people on there that used to run hospital systems like Mark Harrison from Intermountain and Steve Clasco from Jefferson. But again, this is a VC firm that now has a hospital, multi-hospital collaborative. I think that if you put all the hospitals in that collaborative together, they serve like some crazy percentage of the American public. I mean, its I forget what it was, whether it's 10 or 20 or 30, but some crazy percentage. So again, I think it's a no-brainer.
0: I'll summarize a couple of things that... That you said here. I think one thing that you called out through the lens of theory that's really critical is that VC firms bring schools of experience. So they bring the know how and the knowledge, not only to look for the entrepreneurial leaders, but they've been them themselves. You also called out the importance of bringing in outside funding. So there's no infighting for that internally. They are bringing in leadership, aka new resources from the outside, again, so there's not a battle for internal resources, which is critical. And there is the opportunity to obviously be faster to launch because, again, they're bringing not only the funding but the schools of experience. You conclude the book with a Peter Drucker quote, which I loved. If you want something new, you have to stop doing something old. And my question for you is what is the most critical first step in terms of stopping something old that incumbents should be executing? So what is the most critical first step in terms of stopping something old that incumbents should be executing?
1: That's a good question. Like everyone else, I have a much easier time answering what we should be starting to do. I think they have to stop thinking about themselves in the way that they've been thinking about themselves, which is sort of a producer of a service. And in the past, the hospital, this is a little back to the future, the hospital was really the platform in the community where healthcare happened. You have the producers, the service providers coming, and you have the, the customers, right? Patients coming. And then it turned into the hospital became a factory. And a producer, where it had to own everything it made and built everything. And I think that it built these, it became like a medieval sort of fiefdom. It became, it has walls around it, right? And literally and and conceptually. And I think the first thing is they have to stop thinking of themselves in that way. Instead of building more walls, instead of strengthening their walls, I wonder if they need to go back to the future and think of themselves as, again, once again, as the convener, the platform in their communities for healthcare. And I wonder if there's a a business model in there, because I think what's happening is we're seeing more, despite the walls, and despite, and again, the walls are real, by the way, the walls have been very real, and again, in medieval era, we had walls, and there was a reason you had walls, because they were protecting you, right? And I think hospitals built walls to protect them, and a lot of them were regulatory walls, right? So CON laws, so other people couldn't build ORs or other people couldn't build MRI centers or other built people couldn't build surgical suites well those walls are crumbling right and so i think that they have to stop thinking of themselves as these medieval fiefdoms and imagine that they're in a new era and a renaissance in which they can play a really big role and i think that's the hardest thing is to take down those concepts to get beyond the conceptual frameworks and business models that we've been in instead of trying to buttress up the walls. Let's stop that and let's start to get beyond them.
0: Great concluding advice. I'm going to try to summarize some key insights that we gathered from you here today. But I'm glad that listeners have the whole episode to listen to. The first thing we talked about was retail giants and how they're executing a strategy of long-term domination. They're playing water polo. They're no longer swimming in swim lanes. But we talked about time will tell if their approaches to integration... And their ability to manage multiple types of business models will actually lead to this desired domination. But the retail giants are one to watch. These titans of disruption are one to watch nonetheless. VC and health system partnerships provide an avenue to launch disruptive business models because they provide a way to create an autonomous business unit, which, as business model theory says, if you're going to launch a new business model that is potentially disruptive to your core business, it must be set up as an autonomous business unit. And these VC health system partnerships provide a way to do that by bringing in outside funding, outside leaders, and faster path to market. And then we concluded with your advice that health systems... If they seek to get beyond the walls, if they want to do something new, they have to stop doing something old. They need to stop thinking about themselves solely as a producer of a service and imagine that they are in a new era where they can play a new role in this new game. So, Zev, thank you so much for the time that you have spent chatting with me about your new book, Beyond the Walls, on these past two episodes. Listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed hearing these highlights. So, for some new exciting insights on the industry. Take a listen to Beyond the Walls. And Zev, thank you so much for chatting with me about this today. It was so fun to apply theory to to your new insights.
1: Thank you very much, Jen Summers. Always a pleasure. Seriously.
0: Thank you for listening to Life Centered Healthcare. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And for more of the latest in healthcare, check out our website, Institute.org. You can sign up for our newsletter and read our latest industry insights. Until next time, have a wonderful day, everyone.